started now. Welcome everyone to our final uh, session of a stage for new parenthood here at M Pavilion. We've finally got Kate Riggs in the house, um, all the way from London. I'm really uh, thankful that you're here and relieved. Um, <laughs> but thanks all for coming. Today's special in lots of ways. It's also my baby Mabel's first birthday, so it feels quite momentous. Um, she's still alive. Um, <laughs> I'm still alive. Um, so before, before getting any further, I'd just like to acknowledge that we're the Yalakut Willem as the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet. The Yalakut Willem are part of the Bunurong, one of the five major language groups of the Greater Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to their land, their ancestors, and their elders past, present, and future. Um, just want to remind you, you know, use the space as your own. Uh, this installation is for the children. Um, let them, you know, the balls can go wherever, splash around. Um, we don't mind. Um, I expect a few balloons will pop, and that's totally fine as well. Um, the nearest toilets are on Linlithgow Avenue, but the nicest ones are at NGV or Arts Centre, just so you know. Um, we've got lots of change mats here, so feel free to change your baby's nappy wherever it suits you. It's really all about accommodating parents and babies today, so just use the space as your own. And we've got these um, wormy, cushiony, couchy things from Soft Baroque. Um, called foamy feeling and you can rest up against them and even move them around just don't bang them um, yeah uh, we should acknowledge our sponsors who are baby rest they gave us 20 of these white change mats um, and each time we've been using them in new and wonderful ways um, little max was using it as a safe platform for mobile viewing so if any baby wants to do that it's a comfy spot um, and thanks again to M Pavilion for having us over the last four months. It's been really fun to see how our program develops and watch how Mabel interacts with the space differently each time. Oh, yeah. Hey. Um, there's also some release forms going around. So if you've got a baby um, and you don't want them photographed, please make sure you shout out. But also if you are okay for them to be photographed, just please sign the form because our photographer Layla is arriving any moment and she'll hopefully take some good snaps. Um, cool. Okay, I'm going to hand over to Kate now because you've all heard me spiel about this um, three times, so we'll hear what Kate has to say. You know, we were really keen to respond to um, the architect's brief or, or their um, description of the space being a space that can be a playground. You wanted to take that um, statement literally. Um, and that's what we've done for the last three sessions. Um, we had uh, a, uh, the first event was called House, and we were talking about kind of a domestic realm where we filled the whole space with um, uh, uh, lots of rugs and cushions. Um, to domesticate it with an abundance of soft furnishings. Um, and the next session we had was about the street, which we um, filled the space with um, a pram highway and also had a median strip that was inserted, which is fantastic. 
Um, and then the third event, which we um, were talking about district, the scale of district, and that was filled with um, borrowed um, uh, elements from our friends at Design Hub and um, uh, the museum, Melbourne Museum, which was very entertaining for all the babies involved. Um, and so today we're talking about city, which is um, a really great way to end the series, looking at the scale of the city and the implications for parents and babies at a city scale, thinking about the infrastructure involved, um, as well as the kind of cultural changes and history of parenthood in the city of Melbourne. And so today we've inserted a Victorian-era-inspired um, fountain, <laughs> which uh, we hope all the babies enjoy. <laughs> um, and uh, wonderful Studio Neon have come back and um, installed their uh, mobile that was here for the um, first event, House. Um, so we really hope that everyone enjoys it. Um, we also have some city walls in the form of streamers um, and uh, some tiles in the form of the wonderful baby mats. Um, as well as the soft rock insertions, which we're very pleased to have in the space as well. Okay, so we're gonna, the first half of the event will be the more formal um, side, and then we're going to have a birthday party. Um, and we've got some pavlova, the M-Pav, made by my mother, so stick around for that. Um, but I'll now welcome our wonderful speakers. Hey, little one. Um, so we've got um, Carla Pasco, <laughs> um, who'll be talking about the history of motherhood in the city, um, and then we'll be followed by Carolyn Weitzman, who will talk about urban planning and how um, we can better accommodate parent, babies and parents in the city. Okay, I'm going to introduce Carla. Um, I was first alerted to your work actually through my mother, who was interviewed by you for your research project. I, I can neither confirm nor deny that. <laughs> um, Carla's doing a big research project about the history of motherhood in Melbourne and I think recording oral histories. And my mother had me in Fitzroy in the late 80s and um, I think Carla knows all the details <laughs> much more than I do about which walks mum used to do and how she really felt about having this very demanding child. Um, but yeah, so Carla's a research fellow at the University of Melbourne and an honorary associate at, at Museums Victoria. And her research illuminates the history and heritage of women and children in 20th century Australia, particularly motherhood, childhood, and menstruation. Um, sorry. That's, that's plenty, I'm sure. <laughs> um, I think Carla will tell you more about her work, but I'll pass over to you now. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and let me know if anyone's having any trouble hearing me or... or um, and just, or, or also feel free to ask questions along the way. We'll also have lots of time for discussion at the end. So thank you all for coming today. And I really wanted to thank Stephanie and Kate for inviting me to talk about a topic that's very close to my heart, mums in the city. And it sort of matters to me both professionally and personally. On a professional level, I'm a historian at the University of Melbourne and I've done a lot of research into how children, mothers and families interact with the physical environments around them. So their houses, their streets, um, their neighbourhoods and the wider city. My current research is focusing upon the experience of becoming a mother for the first time. 
and I'm conducting interviews with mothers of every generation that's still alive today. So I'm, I'm looking at the experience of becoming a mother from the middle of the 20th century all the way up to today. I'm asking them about a range of topics, um, including whether the house and the neighbourhood that they were living in at the time they first became a mother affected their experiences um, of that transition. But as well as being an historian, I'm a mother myself. I've got a three and a five-year-old, so my memories of negotiating urban space with a baby are still quite vivid. Um, things like the challenges of dealing with a smelly poo-tastrophe in a department store or trying to get onto a crowded tram with your pram and, you know, the art of not making eye contact as you try to squeeze on, or simply things like trying to find an unstimulating place to breastfeed a baby in the city. All of these challenges are still quite um, vivid in my mind. So I'm going to talk today about the experiences of mothers with babies in urban environments. I'm going to talk about it a little bit historically first, how this experience might have changed. I'm going to suggest some continuities to the experience of negotiating city spaces with a child and then I'm going to make some modest suggestions for the future as well. So I've done interviews with nearly 50 Victorian mothers um, and it's revealed that each historical generation has had particular experiences of interacting with their local environment. Mothers of the 50s and 60s told me that they often felt quite isolated in the home Many houses didn't have a domestic phone yet and it made communication with friends and families that much more difficult. Families, if they were lucky, would have one car and usually the father would drive that car to his workplace, leaving the mother with no car during the day. Um, so they were essentially reliant upon walking or public transport. Many mothers walked locally um, to their daily shops to buy groceries for dinner every day in an era in which um, fridge technology was much more limited. I interviewed one woman called, uh, who I'll call Jane who had 11 children across the 50s and 60s. And when I asked her what a typical day was like with her first child, she said, well, there's not much time when you have a baby and you're inexperienced. You don't have much time to do anything but make the beds and prepare something for dinner. Fortunately, we live near the shops and I could walk up to the butcher. Otherwise, I didn't go out very much because, as I said, I sewed and I had housework to do and John would be in the pram and sometimes I would work in the garden because I liked gardening. Public transport in the 50s and 60s was quite challenging to negotiate with a pram. Think about W-class trams, for example, and how you'd get a pram onto those. Many mothers found it easier to stay within walking distance of their home in their local neighbourhood. Rachel had her three children in the late 60s and when I asked her about life with her firstborn, she recalled, I used to take her out in the pram for a walk most days or else we'd sit in the back in the garden and play in the sandpit. Occasionally my sister would come over. I suppose I spent most of my time getting the meals, feeding her and doing the washing and ironing. All those things you know that you do. But I do want to highlight that one of the main reasons that mid-20th century mothers spent more time in the home was that domestic tasks were significantly more labour-intensive in ways that we can barely imagine today. To cite just one example, in the era before disposable nappies and electric washing machines, soaking, washing, wringing and drying nappies all by hand was an incredibly time-consuming job. Daphne had her son in the mid-50s and she remembers, I used to boil nappies in a tin on the gas stove... And I remember when we got a ringer, heavens, it made life so much easier. You got on your hands and knees to do your floors, your washing was done by hand and you never had a dryer. 
Your clothesline was a line that went from there to there and you propped it up. If you didn't do your washing, the main washing, out on the line by 9 o'clock on Monday morning, you were considered slovenish. And actually, lots of housewives have talked about how people would notice when you got your washing out and how organised you were as a housewife. Changes in domestic technologies and the increasing prevalence of home phones and cars gave mothers of the 70s and 80s considerably more free time, connectedness and mobility. In an era in which many women weren't engaging in paid work while their children were young, mothers put their energies into volunteering, establishing and maintaining grassroots community organisations like playgroups, which met at parks, churches, community centres or homes. The Nursing Mothers Association, which are now called the Australian Breastfeeding Association, were very widespread across the suburbs of, of many Australian cities in the 70s. Most neighbourhoods had a local chapter of nursing mums and they'd meet at each other's houses. In an era before institutional childcare was widely available, mothers also formed babysitting clubs with their friends. Tanya had her three children in the 70s in a close-knit community and she remembers, well, we were just totally cooperative with one another. At the drop of a hat, if you needed something, if you needed a medical appointment or something, there was no hesitation. Oh, could you look after Sally? And of course, they'd be reciprocal any time. So that was really strong. We dropped in and out of each other's places constantly to have coffee and the kids would play. For mothers in the 90s and into the 21st century, the physical infrastructure of the city slowly became more hospitable. City streets, local facilities and public transport became more accessible, making it easier to navigate urban spaces with a child. Maternal child health services began to actively encourage the formation of parents groups, which aimed to foster connections between new parents in a local community. As communications technologies like mobile phones became more sophisticated and more common, Mothers could create networks that were virtual as well as physical. And so in the case of parents groups, the physical proximity of many new parents is now reinforced by virtual social connections with many groups communicating through social media. Despite all of these shifts that I've outlined over the last 70 years, I do think a few things haven't changed. I would argue that after children, mothers are the demographic group most intimately connected to their local neighbourhood. Through time spent in the home and its immediate vicinity, mothers come to be closely attuned to the sights, sounds, smells and rhythms of their local neighbourhood. After children, mothers are the segment of the population most often seen walking the streets within a two or three kilometre radius of their house, coming to know every bump in the footpath, every friendly neighbour, every fragrant garden. And I want to quote uh, one woman I interviewed who had her children a couple of years ago. So she's a contemporary mum. Because I really liked the way she summarised this, this intimacy. Well, I'd just say that the thing that surprised me about motherhood was a newfound obsession with walking. I just walked everywhere. He screamed in the car. He didn't scream as much in the pram. So it was just simple like that. I loved being outside. Everything slowed down. I noticed nature more. I became really obsessed with the seasons and the weather and would walk in every weather, rain, hail or shine kind of thing. I would kind of do the same walk every single day and I would notice particular things that were different on the walk. And yeah, I suppose it was sort of like a much more attention to detail than I had ever experienced before. That was an amazing thing. We lived in quite a small house, so I did spend a lot of time out of the house and would walk for hours, 
even with a screaming baby, would just walk because it was better to be outside than inside. Better to be breastfeeding on the grass in a park than sitting on the couch at home kind of thing. Another thing that I would argue has remained common to every generation is that new mothers remain vulnerable users of urban space. As people who are mastering new skills, struggling with specialised equipment and attempting to placate irrational and unpredictable companions. It's sometimes suggested that to really empathise with another person you have to walk a mile in their shoes. In an urban planning context, some people have argued that planners should try getting around the city in a wheelchair or blindfolded in order to understand the unique challenges facing a person with mobility or vision impairment. Some enthusiastic researchers have followed children around urban spaces since the 70s or loaned kids cameras to document the kinds, the special type of relationship that young children have with urban space. But how would we extrapolate this, this principle for new mums? I suppose we could have urban planners walk around with prams, sleep deprived and therefore forgetful, confused and emotional, with robot babies that periodically cry for no reason or spurt explosive poo everywhere. But I'm being deliberately silly here because I think I want to make the serious point that I don't think you can understand the city from a mother's perspective until you've actually done that, you've actually experienced that. Previously, peripheral sensations can suddenly become intense and overwhelming like cigarette smoke, urban pollution, cooking odours or perfume and the normal urban soundscape can become really intense like blaring music, car horns or people shouting. Urban landscapes are intrinsically overstimulating, I'd argue, but mothers notice this more when they're seeing the world afresh through their baby's eyes. Some psychologists say that a new mother reverts to a childlike state when she has a baby, as her physical and emotional intimacy with her new child give her a level of em empathy with an infant's emotional understanding. I knew we'd have children interrupting today, but not wildlife as well. <laughs> um, so, yeah, they, people argue that uh, a new mother reverts to a child's sort of psychological state. Um, and in this sense, when you have a child, it's the birth of a mother as well as a child. Both new mother and new baby are hyper aware of and hypersensitive to the environment around them. Some of this relates to some of the physical challenges that they face, such as trying to get a pram into shops and cafes or trying to find a flat surface to change a baby's nappy. But some of this sensitivity is emotional and social. And in this sense, interactions with the cityscape are not simply an interaction with a mute urban landscape. The physical is always influenced by the social. So where a mother feels socially connected to her local community, she's more likely to find the the environment welcoming. And place perception is often influenced by emotions. So where a new mother is struggling emotionally, she is more likely to perceive her environment to be hostile or uncaring. And this has come through very strongly in the, the interviews that I've con um, conducted with mothers. So based on these observations, I'd like to suggest several implications for urban design. New mothers are by definition vulnerable and volatile. They're sleep deprived, they're thrown into the biggest change and the biggest challenge of their life and they're forced to adapt very quickly. Because of this, I think urban environments need to be more than just unthreatening, they need to be actively welcoming to mothers. 
Some of the changes needed are already underway, but I think should become universal. Things like change tables in every restaurant, cafe, shopping centre and toilet block. Things like the provision of toys, books and drawing materials in every eating place for children whose attention span only lasts as long as the baby Chino does. Curbs that allow prams to easily cross roads. Fully accessible public transport on every vehicle and every route. Free drinks and comfortable facilities for breastfeeding mothers. Shop aisles that allow the free passage of prams. And toilets at every park for preschoolers and mums whose bladder control is still less than ideal. And until the, all these things are universal, I'd like to argue that civil disobedience is the only answer. <laughs> I conclude by urging all parents to deliberately knock over stock in narrow shop aisles that can't accommodate prams and to brazenly change stinky nappies on the floor of every restaurant that fails to provide baby change facilities. <laughs> Thank you. That was wonderful. Real call to, call to arms, wasn't it? <laughs> um, I'm just going to introduce um, Caroline, um, who is a professor in urban planning at the University of Melbourne. Um, she's the author and co-author or lead editor of five books, including Melbourne, What Next? A Discussion on Creating a Better Future and Building Inclusive Cities, Women, Women's Safety and the Right to the City. Um, her research interests include integrated planning for affordable housing and social infrastructure, improving access to public space for women, children and people with disabilities, um, and collaborative planning partnerships, which I'm particularly keen to hear about. Um, she has published over 50 peer-reviewed scholarly publications on partnerships for social justice in the city um, and frequently provides um, policy advice to local, state and national government and to the UN as well. So I'm very happy to welcome Carolyn. Well, thank you very much, uh, Stephanie and Kate, for having me here. Um, Quite often I speak to uh, crowds where the average age is about 60, and as I travel towards being having an average age of about 60, um, uh, that's cool, but it's really great to be in this beautiful venue where the average age is definitely not 60. Um, I have five things to say, but I'm going to be a bit indulgent and talk about my own experience as a parent first. Um, I have two kids, they're now in their 20s. Um, when my son was two and we just moved to Melbourne and we were living in an apartment in St. Kilda, we'd been there for about a month and my husband was the full-time caregiver. And one time he was going for a walk with Simon and Simon said, Daddy, go that way. Now that way, that way. And, you know, uh, David played along and he was like, what's going on? And they ended up in front of an ice cream place. And um, David told me that story, and I was like, wow, two-year-olds have amazing wayfinding abilities, must find out more. Uh, and then, you know, much later, uh, I got together with my daughter one day. She was about 15, and we met at the European restaurant downtown. And um, I, uh, she said to me, Mom, I'm going to give you a tour of my Melbourne. And I was like, this is awesome. She's 15, and she showed me a bunch of places that were special to her, that I'd never really thought about, you know, where she used to hang out with her friends. So a lot of my research is about kids as citizens and um, about child-friendly cities. And I try to listen to these stories, not just from my kids, but from other kids, in order to get their perspective on the world. Because 
their perspective, like, you know, I could say, hey, I was a kid once, I know about these things, but I'm taller now, and I see the world from a different kind of latitude. So it's really important to refresh ourselves every once in a while and talk to kids. I have a friend at the University of Melbourne named Kylie. She talks to kids as young as 18 months, two years, um, and asks them what they like about uh, um, the city. And um, they say they like uh, baby chinos and they don't like cars. You know what? I like um, lattes and I don't like cars, so it's great. I agree with those toddlers. Um, what I'm going to be talking about briefly, uh, like one of my pet peeves is that a lot of academic research is paywalled. Um, everything I'll be talking about today, if you were to Google vertical living kids or you were to Google creating child-friendly environments, you'll find ways to read them if you have any time to read, which is hard when you have a young kid. Um, and I'm going to be focusing a little bit about kids living in higher density environments. I grew up in an apartment with a single mum. I'm not too crazy because of it. Um, uh, and um, I've always been interested in the experience of kids who actually grow up downtown in very busy and active places. Um, so about 10 years ago, I talked to 40 kids, half in condos and half in public housing, all within about five kilometers of the CBD about their experiences, they're about eight to 12 years old, about their experiences of growing up in apartments. Um, as you know, from about the 80s onwards, uh, Melbourne really transformed itself and got a lot of apartment units, particularly in central Melbourne, between 2006 and 2012, for instance, there were 12,000 apartments built in the city of Melbourne, but less than 10% of them were three bedrooms or more, and only 20 of those 12,000 apartments were affordable to people on low and moderate incomes, and of course, both, uh, most parents are on low or moderate incomes. The notion behind the transformation of central Melbourne was that um, it would be populated by dual income, no kids, or dinks, uh, and empty nesters, people who, like me who'd managed to get rid of their kids, uh, so to speak. Um, but what happens sometimes when uh, two dinks love each other very much is that they have a dick, dual income kid, or they have a sick, a single income kid, or they have a um, pick, a part-time income kid, um, and two things happen. One is that much as I would not give up the experience of parenthood for uh, anything, you kind of take a vow of poverty on when you have, give birth to a kid or two because they're really, really expensive and it becomes difficult and really not desirable to, for, for um, uh, both parents, if there's two parents, to work as hard. So you actually take a big income hit. But guess what? A lot of the things that attract dual income, no kids, to living in the central city also attracts you once you have kids. And once your kids are old enough to talk about it, they kind of like living there too. So um, when I talked 10 years ago to kids living uh, downtown, they found that there was a lot to see or do. They loved um, buskers and they loved museums and they loved um, uh, markets and all of those cool things that happened downtown. There were two big complaints. One of them was about a lack of critical mass of kids. And the other, of course, was uh, loved the downtown library on Collins Street, loved um, uh, the walk at South Bank, etc. But there aren't, like, you know, there aren't any schools downtown, so they actually had to go pretty long way to get to school, which, you know, is, it's tough to force kids at a very young age, and of course their parents, uh, to be commuters. 
Um, and it's not as though things are so fabulous for kids in suburbs. Uh, I have a colleague, Karen Malone, who talked to kids age four to eight uh, and gave them a week with a camera in Bendigo. And half of those kids, when asked to take a picture of stuff they do during the week, took a picture from the back seat of their car. And that's not an ideal place to grow up, the back seat of a car. So we have to start thinking about cities that get kids out of the back seats of cars to get to schools and to get to parks and all of that cool stuff. So apartments per se aren't bad for kids' health. Indeed, evidence, particularly from parents of young children, are that living in uh, central cities can be great places. They're close to employment, so you don't have this well, you have a little bit less of the work-life balance issue. Um, they can be close to, uh, as I see, great things to do. If we're going to create cities that are truly welcoming to kids, we have to look at three scales. Um, well, actually, four scales. The four scales that, we have been, that you guys have been talking about. The first is the home. And um, my niece and nephew recently tried to raise a kid in an apartment, and it didn't work. Why didn't it work? Because of acoustics, right? Because uh, a lot of the apartments that are being built are really shoddy in terms of acoustics. So it's very hard within the apartment. They had to be silent after 7 o'clock to let their kids sleep properly. Um, it creates problems with the neighbors. Uh, you need adequate storage in order to have a pram, in order to have a tricycle, etc., in order to have a shopping cart. Um, and uh, from a very young age, you do want your kids to have, I used to joke, like a, a running track around the apartment <laughs> or um, at least a little space outdoors for them to run around a bit. Um, uh, so a balcony or a small patio with overlook from kitchen to living rooms. We aren't really building those kinds of apartments right now in Australian cities. We are elsewhere. I'll get to that too in a minute. At the building scale, it's really important to have a place to have a party. It's great that there's a first birthday party here in M Pavilion, but a lot of people don't have places that are big enough to really entertain when they live in an apartment, but occasionally you want to have a party, right, Mabel? You want to have a party, for sure. Um, so, um, you know, there needs to be adjacent spaces to the building for independent play, and we're building, you know... Uh, pools and gyms and stuff like that in apartments that aren't really suitable for young kids and quite often they're not allowed before they're 16. Um, it's good to have uh, hard surfaces near the building in order to have trikes, places to dig. In environmental psychology we talk about affordances, so it isn't so much you need X, but you need a place to dig, you need a place to smell flowers, that kind of thing. Um, at the precinct or neighborhood level, you need nature spaces, you need drop-ins, you need kinders, you need schools, libraries are incredibly important, you need bulk billing, nearby health care. And at the metropolitan level, we have to stop building these monocultures. I was talking about 90 plus percent being small apartments in the city of Melbourne. You go out to the city of Melbourne and it's 90 plus percent uh, single family detached houses. And as people get older, such as myself, you start thinking about downsizing. And you kind of, you know, if you have um, your parents nearby, you want them to be able to do childcare immediately. And it becomes really hard to contemplate downsizing if there's no apartments nearby uh, and accessible apartments. So it's great to start thinking about building um, cities across the life course um, and it's also really important to start thinking about 
playful spaces for all ages. Because now that my kids are grown up, my, my son's just about to visit from Canada. He's in his mid-20s. And he wants to go to St. Kilda Adventure Playground. And I said, honey, you're going to have to borrow a kid to be allowed in, you know? He wants to jump on the trampoline, darn it, you know? <laughs> so it's really important to build playful spaces for all ages. You don't pass this magical point where you don't want to play anymore. Um, I'm just going to end up by saying that there are some cities that have been talking about it. I'll start off with Bendigo. Bendigo has a policy for all of its open space that it should be playful for all spaces. What a great policy idea. City of Vancouver that's done a lot of really cool stuff about getting people in the central city um, since the early 1990s has had um, uh, planning guidelines for high density uh, housing. At least 20% of each development has to be large two-bedroom plus sizes. There need to be schools within 400 meters walking distance of all new developments. There need to be community centers which are paid for by value-added uh, uh, schemes. Um, uh, and you go to Vancouver and there are more community centers and recreation centers than you can shake a stick at, including some really great new green places down uh, in the central city. Um, and they did post-occupancy evaluation. They talked to kids and they talked to parents. 90% of the kids living in Falls Creek in, in central Vancouver were happy with where they lived. Their main complaints were not enough big play spaces and actually the schools are a little bit overcrowded now because guess what? Parents and kids are voting with their feet. Singapore legislates a mix of housing unit sizes as well as ground floor play areas or shops in every single building. It isn't rock and science, it isn't that hard to do, but we aren't really doing it in Melbourne yet. We have to do better. Thank you, Karen. Now, Kate and I have lots of questions written down and prepared, but does anyone have a burning question or shall we start with ours and then please think of some? Yeah, Lauren will have a mic if anyone wants to ask a question. Do you want to start, Kate? Um, you talked a lot um, about legislation, which... Oh, sorry, I'm terrible with this mic. Um, which I found really interesting. Um, could you talk a bit about your, your influence to change legislation? How, how do we... How do, like, oh. Steph and I... Yeah. Um, how do we play a part in changing legislation, you know, what's, what's something that one person can do to kind of influence that and make change? Well, um, the members of, um, although local governments can do a lot and it's really important to get in touch with your local councillors, um, councillors work part-time and you don't necessarily want 32 different design guidelines mm. across metropolitan Melbourne. There is a state election coming up this year. Certainly, I'm really interested in talking about a better vision for cities. I think Friends of the Earth is doing some advocacy work as well about environmentally sound cities. And, of course, you can't have a healthy city without having an environmentally sound city. They're talking about transport. I'm trying to get them to talk about housing issues a bit. So both um, working with collectives about what kind of city we want and even talking individually to your local um, uh, member of state, because it, it really is the state government that sets planning rules, um, can have a big uh, impact. I often find that just a one-on-one -on -one conversation, it's sometimes hard to set up, not necessarily with a minister, but with your local member can, or your local senator, can have a huge 
impact, particularly if you bring your kid. Okay, we, need, we have to take Mabel. I wanted to ask you, Carla, why have you chosen to focus on Melbourne and Fitzroy and what are its specificities? Like, what is it to be a mother in Melbourne that's different to be a mother in any other place? Um, well, I should explain that I've got, I've got three case study areas for my research. So I'm looking at Fitzroy, at Malvern and at Ocean Grove. And really what I was trying to do is... Um, it's, it's partly because I'm interested in this issue of to what extent does the, the kind of place that you're living in affect your experience of becoming a mother. And that's why I chose what I think are very different spatial and social environments. So I wanted to have an inner city neighbourhood that is um, medium density and um, culturally and socioeconomically diverse. And Fitzroy is probably one of the most diverse neighbourhoods you can get in Melbourne. Um, I also wanted to have a neighbourhood that was more your um, spaced out single level houses on quarter acre blocks, as, as Carolyn was talking about, um, and an area like Malvern that's been solidly middle class throughout its entire history. Um, and then I wanted a regional location as well because um, people talk about both the, uh, the joys of living in regional places because there's more access to nature and some people claim there's a better sense of community. They also talk about the challenges in terms of things like access to um, health and educational services and that kind of thing. So I spent quite a lot of time thinking exactly about those neighbourhoods that I would look at and um, that has been carried through in the sorts of things that people have said to me about their local environments. But I also I want to say with the proviso that I have found that um, women who identify as having really struggled emotionally with the experience of becoming a mother, whether they were diagnosed with postnatal depression or, or, or they were living in an age in which that wasn't really diagnosed, um, have quite commonly found their environment to be hostile and uncaring. So that was the point I was, I was trying to make before that I think is really interesting is that even something that appears to be a purely physical environment, um, your interaction and perception of that space can be heavily influenced by how you're feeling emotionally and whether you're feeling connected socially. Does anyone have any questions? No? We have heaps. <laughs> I was just going to say too, I'd love to hear, as we're talking, if any of you have reflections on your own experiences, we'd love to hear them. Lauren, I think Shelley just up the back. Shelley spoke at Street at our event, so she's an expert here. An expert in that I have three children I'm raising in the city, so my twins here who are seven and Stella who's 13. But the comment I wanted to make is something that we observed on the weekend, um, getting, taking the bikes on the train up to Wood End to go for a bike ride and the lack of kids on public transport. And every time I get on the tram or the train, I just think, where are the kids? Um, and I don't know whether it's because families tend to drive and that is the sort of predominant mode of transport. I mean, we walked into town today, but that's because we're three kilometres away and we can. Um, but then I went and bought the family ticket, the family saver, as they call it. One adult and two kids is considered a family saver. And I said to the woman at the, the ticket counter, how does this actually help 
a family. Like, it doesn't because we were three kids and two parents. So we bought two and there was a big kerfuffle. How do you organise, you know, the family saver to suit this family? But I think a key thing in public transport is just making it affordable. Like, they used to even have the Sunday savers, two bucks. They cost, like, $7 now. $7 for a saver for to take your kids to the city. That's a family of five that's already $35. Why wouldn't you drive? Anyway, just a comment that's fresh in my mind from the weekend. I've got an example. I've got um, a three-year-old and a six-year-old and I purposely bought a pram that would fit down the aisle of a tram because I use the tram. I live on the 86 line and I was so excited that the 86 was going to start getting accessible trams, which pretty much happened just as my two- to three-year-old came out of the pram, but he was just on the tail end of it. And when the accessible tram came in, I realised that even though I could get the pram onto the tram without getting it lifted up the stairs by somebody else... You can't get it between the seats. So an accessible tram is made for a wheelchair to sit in the vestibule area. It's not made for that person to travel down the tram. So it really severely limited how I could use the tram. And I'd waited for like six years for it to come to my line. And then when it got there, we still couldn't use it. So, you know, those things that are thought to be universal design are often not. They're, they're only made for one user group. Or even when you, you travel on trams and you see, um, let's say, a parent with a young child in a pram and another child that's standing, it's incredibly... Like, prams, trams are clearly not designed with young children in mind because it's incredibly difficult for a young child to keep their balance or to find somewhere to hold on to um, on a tram. And it's, again, just that really simple thing of if you actually attempted that journey with a couple of children in tow, I think those things would become apparent really quickly. I'm thinking about um, some activism that was successful a couple of years ago uh, on St Kilda Road and a bunch of kids at the school that's on St Kilda Road um, uh, filmed uh, how quickly the uh, walking man changed. It was physically impossible to um, cross uh, in that time. And, you know, it's very... uh, they went to Vic Groads with footage of three-year-olds who were halfway through the intersection on St. Kilda Road, which, as you know, is fast and scary. Um, and um, uh, it was a blinking red light, and then it turned red, and the kids were caught in the um, uh, middle, so to speak, or had to cross illegally. Um, and Vic Groads changed that particular intersection. But, of course, it's a cultural shift that's necessary. We're talking about three big freeways being built by the current state government um, and public transport is still, by and large, not as frequent as it could be, not as accessible as it could be, and certainly not spread out across the city as much as it could be. And again, that's that's leaving very bad um, choices for children and their parents. Um, There was one study in an Essendon school, it happens to be longitudinal, so I'm going to cite it, in the early 70s, 90 plus percent of the kids were walking and cycling to that primary school. By um, the 1990s, uh, only 13 percent were walking and cycling, and I suspect it would be even lower now, 20 years later. Um, So in the course of a single generation, we turned from... Uh, children's independent mobility, a way to, um, uh, you know, car-dependent mobility, and we have to find a way 
not necessarily to go back to the 70s, because as Carla can say, the 50s and the 70s weren't that hot in a number of ways, but um, forward to a city where kids walking three kilometers uh, or getting on a pram, uh, getting on a tram with a pram or a shopping cart isn't considered um, weird and unacceptable, but actually really good environmental social choice to make and supported by policy. Hi, I just wanted to touch on that last comment that you made about this kind of idea of it being weird and unaccessible, and I think that's kind of a real um, driver. Like, it keeps it keeps going. So before you have kids, you don't see kids on trams, and then suddenly you've got a kid, and like, oh, well, do they go on trams? Like, what are you meant to do? And you get on a tram, and you've got a screaming baby, and like, oh, you just got to get off or something, you know? So it's just, I think it's about visibility as well. And there are examples, like in the local school that my kids went to when they were um, six and ten, I used to send them together to, to uh, cycle to school. And it was pretty weird at the time, and there was a cultural shift in the school, so much that it's now considered pretty unacceptable for kids to be dropped off in a car. Uh, and I kind of feel sorry for those parents, but that's another story. Um, it, it is possible to get lots of bike sheds to, frankly, ban uh, cars within 200 metres of the school because that's one of the most dangerous places for kids to be immediately outside the school during the school pickup. Um, uh, sometimes the pollution levels in school playgrounds is actually higher than in the surrounding community because of uh, idling cars waiting to pick up their kids. Um, so um, there's a lot that can be done at the immediate school level to make the kind of shift um, between um, kids um, uh, and, and parents uh, using active travel being weird to it being very normalized. It, it can, that change can happen. Um, I was just going to say, um, following on from the transportation thing, I was watching um, a bit of a, a d documentary um, that SBS had on Viceland, and it was similar, it was um, a case study of, in Tokyo how children as young as uh, four and five are gone to give errands and tasks um, by themselves to go to the shop to buy something, and then it gives them that sense of in independence. And it was this girl at seven, she took... Two tram, two trains, like the bullet trains, to get to school every day, and our transportation, and then it crossed over to her father in uh, Sydney, who, you know, his daughter was eleven and got still got a uh, ride to school every day, and she just her only thing she wanted was that when she was thirteen and going to high school, she just wanted to bike home and get a key to her house, and kind of opened up that you know that child had lost their sense of independence to be able to do things for themselves, and I think it's it just it's probably hardest for the parents that you're paranoid and you're anxious about letting your children do things but they're going to be stronger because of it in the long run I think. Yeah and I, I, I want to make the point too that the way that we view children and their competency changes over time. So my um, previous research was on the experience of growing up in Melbourne in the 50s in a couple of different suburbs and one of the things that fascinated me about interviewing that generation of people who we call baby boomers, who were, who were children in the 50s, was that they, a lot of them had walked to kindergarten by themselves. They weren't usually very long distances. Um, they might have been less than a kilometre. But this is three and four-year-olds walking to kindergarten by themselves. Today, that would be considered child neglect. But 
when children grow up with uh, an expectation from the adults around them that they have the spatial competency to perform um, basic repetitive journeys like that, then they can actually do it. But we now have, um, it, in this specific historical period and in our specific culture, we have a concept that children are not able to do those things and therefore um, you would, you know, seriously be in danger of, of, of getting in trouble with the Department of Human Services if you let your child walk to kindergarten by themselves, I think. So, yeah, I just think it's interesting that things that we consider to be sort of innate or, or natural, um, often when you look at them over time, you can see that they've changed quite dramatically. Thanks. I was just going to follow on from your story and tell a, a tale about um, my oldest daughter. So we live on St Kilda Road and cross over St Kilda Road and go through Faulkner Park to primary school. And I spent a lot of time sort of slowly letting that lead out. So I'd cross to St Kilda Road, would walk up the path and then I'd let her go or I'd ride my bike around and watch her. And this was done over years to sort of building that confidence up. And by the time you were in, what, still grade four... I think you were making the walk on her own. Anyway, it came to a day in, in the school classroom and the teacher said, oh, who walks to school on their own? And Stella and her friend put their hands up, the only two in the class, and he said, there's someone in the park who's, you know, there's a stranger danger alert out. Put the fear of God into her and all of that work that went into sort of promoting that independence was undone. And I actually ended up talking to the teacher and I said, I don't think you dealt with that well because it made her feel... Well, ostracised, like she, her and her friend were the only two who walked, so already they were outsiders, and then scared, um, paranoid, all this stuff that around sort of living in the city, it's, it's a reality, but you educate your kids about the dangers of that. Um, so I, I think in terms of education policy too, there's a way that they deal with those stranger danger alerts that needs to be a little bit more, what's the word, um, I don't know, sensitive perhaps, to the kids and to the parents who are allowing their kids to walk on their own. Carla and I were talking before, um, just before this, about a mutual acquaintance uh, named Julie Rudner, who's doing some research up in Bendigo, uh, and she did her uh, PhD thesis on risk. Um, stranger danger, I mean, obviously the majority of child abductions involve custody battles, um, it's, it's a very infinitesimal risk. It's a very scary risk, but it's a very infinitesimal risk. Um, half of people in Australia are overweight or obese. That's, that's a really, really present risk. And we know that everyday physical activity is one of the best protections against overweight and obesity. So we have to have a better understanding of what risks are in this society and also how we protect people from risk. So again, my daughter and her friend were in the park up the street by themselves when they were mm, 10 or 11 and they came back and they said there was a scary guy in the park and I said, what'd you do? And they said, uh, well, um, we decided that we'd come home. I said, that's a really great choice. Good for you. You know, you trusted your instincts. He looks scary. Do you want to call the police? Um, and eventually they actually went back to the park that day. It's, it's always very scary to deal with these things, but we have to figure out a way to manage risks. Again, I'm sorry, I'm going to be indulgent and anecdotal. So my son's always been a very spaced out kind of kid, and I gave him a mobile phone from a very early age, partly because he'd get lost. 
Um, and he was supposed to go to an eye doctor's appointment, and I said, I'll meet you there. This is the time. This is the tram. This is the way you do it. Let's say it was about 12. And he called me, and he said, I'm in St. Kilda. I said, well, you were supposed to take the tram from Brunswick to downtown. How did you end up in St. Kilda? He said, well, I was sort of thinking about Pokemon, and I got into, you know, and, and I was like, okay, so what you have to do is get on the tram and come back because you've now missed the appointment. So he got on the tram and came back, and then he called me and he said, I'm at the other tram terminus. What do I do now? <laughs> and I mean, that's sort of the kid he was, and it, uh, frankly, the adult he is. Um, and uh, I was, you know, so that's why he had a phone, and that's why he got in touch with me when he inevitably got spaced out and got lost. But he needed to figure out at some age how to work his way around the city, and 12 seemed as good as age as any for him to get lost. He still kind of gets lost, you know. It, it's not the worst thing in the world to miss an eye doctor's appointment. It is, it's not the worst thing in the world for you to grow up thinking that the only alternative is cars and then grow up and be the transport decision maker of tomorrow, but it's actually much worse for that second thing to happen than to get lost on the way to the eye doctor, in my opinion. I wanted to shift the conversation slightly from transport now to playgrounds because I read your article, Carla, about the history of playgrounds. And I was wondering, so in this article, I'll just try and summarise, Carla gives a, a really succinct history of playgrounds. And from my understanding of the article, which I read while having Mabel asleep in my arms and probably missed some of it... Um, I think you wrote that at, at some time there, was no, there were no playgrounds because it was thought that the city was just generally a baby-friendly place. So you didn't need these specific areas for children. And then you end the article, I think, um, saying that you know, playgrounds are really a good way of understanding our cultural values around childhood and how we think about um, children and space. So what do you think contemporary Melbourne playgrounds tell us about our current cultural values around, about childhood? Oh, that's, a, that's a really big question. Yeah, because Mabel's just starting to get to childhood age and I'm sort mm. of seeking them out and, you know, some of them have gates, mm. some of them don't, some of them have um, tan bark and things and it's like, it, at the moment it feels like a really scary place for me because I'm just seeing like a million choky objects <laughs> and then like the road and she's running towards it. So, yeah, I threw it um, yeah, playgrounds are interesting. So the, the potted history is that from about the late 19th century, so a bit more than 100 years ago, um, cities, people, there was a whole lot of stuff around um, con greater concern about children, trying to move them out of workplaces and into schools and having compulsory education. And streets in cities started to be seen as dangerous places for children, whereas previously they just played everywhere on streets. And the idea was born, which is a relatively modern one, that children need specific places to play, that children need adults to design a space for them where they can play. This is historically a very recent phenomenon. Before that, kids would just play wherever and whenever with whatever they could find. Um, so even that is interesting and specific to our culture and uh, in, in this day and age that children are perceived to need adult assistance to either play or to create a safe space where they, they can play, that they can't just, you know, do it wherever they are. Um, from about the 1970s, there was a big uh, upsurge in concerns about safety 
in general, but specifically in relation to playgrounds. So there was um, an increase in Western countries in um, safety legislation and, and sort of universal safety standards governing the types of play equipment you could install and things like um, how high um, different platforms could be from the ground and um, the sorts of materials you had to have on the ground in order to make falling safer. And so um, there's a really interesting, um, I guess, play activist in the United Kingdom called um, Tim Gill who he wrote a book called No Risk that argues that we've created, in, in the West, we've created environments that are so safe for children that they are no longer exposed to any risk and that you need risk in or you need to be sort of pushing yourself to encounter risk and occasionally make mistakes in order to learn. And so uh, I suppose it's, it's similar in a way to Carolyn's argument. He says if, the worst, if, if you design playgrounds that have a little bit more risk and a little bit more challenge for kids, they might fall and break their arm, yes. But if in, in, in encountering greater risk they actually learn more climbing or they have more fun or the whole experience is just inherently more challenging for them, the benefits for them are greater than the small risk of a minor injury. Um, so that's the kind of argument he would make. But I did say in that article that um, there's, there's a, a counter argument to that which is that um, increasingly safe spaces to play are being seen as um, a, a right of children that um, has become part of development work in developing countries. So whereas um, in Australia, you know, we can argue intellectually about whether or not we should be creating these beautiful safe playgrounds for children, um, I'd like to acknowledge that there are lots of, lots of places around the world where there are very few spaces for, safe spaces for children to play, where they've found, you know, a high level of um, lead and other toxic things in the paint, for example, or contaminated soil, or simply um, places where there is no safe environment in a local neighbourhood for kids to play. So, you know, I think when we, when we make arguments about play spaces for children, they are very um, culturally specific. But I'm constantly fascinated by the way that my own children actually don't need special equipment or special objects to play. They're constantly surprising me. And sometimes that's infuriating for a parent because you're like, well, we're trying to get out the door. I'm trying to get your shoes on. And instead, you've come up with a game that involves your shoes and your hat. And you completely can't hear anything that I'm saying to you about, you know, getting your clothes on. So it can be frustrating for a parent. But at the same time, I'm like, wow. How amazing must it be to be at that stage of life when all you see around you are potential for creativity and playfulness? Um, and here I am with my very adult, like, instrumentalist, we must get to the place that we need to go to, you know, kind of mentality. Uh, you both talked about technology having a really important role in how parents interact in the city. And I was just wondering whether you had um, optimism around technology making more of a having more of an impact on how um, babies and parents use the city or can interact in the city well obviously giving kids a phone is a middle-class crutch but I have to say um, and again this is um, I mostly talk to kids and not their parents but it is a middle-class crutch that has worked for a lot of parents um, and I'd rather that kids are um, 
let loose uh, with a phone as a crutch or as a safety mechanism for them, them not to be let loose. I think there's also a lot of paranoia about kids in virtual space that echoes paranoia about kids in physical space. Um, and again, you know, uh, different strokes for different folks. Um, uh, the, uh, my kids were on Facebook at a fairly early age. They used it to um, uh, organize their get-togethers, etc. Um, it, it is a problem, obviously, when um, uh, kids are spending way more time screen time than outdoors time. But um, like anything else, virtual space is, um, uh, you know, it, it, it's a construct in its own right, but it's also uh, something that can be used in a really positive way as well as a really negative way. And um, it's very tied up with the stuff that Carla was just talking about in terms of talking with kids about risks, but allowing them to take risks. I think that's really all I'd want to say about technology. Uh, the only thing I was going to expand on is what I was um, saying in my talk about the ways... So my, I should say my research is specifically about mothers, so I'm not trying to leave fathers out here, but that's, that's not my expertise, that's not what I've been researching. Um, I've been really interested in my own experience and in my research about the ways that um, parents create online communities... And um, certainly with, with my new parents group, my first one, for example, um, we met, we first met physically uh, and it was coordinated by our local maternal child health nurse, but soon the group um, had a virtual space that was as active as our sort of physical interactions. We would, we would meet once a month in our local neighbourhood, sorry, once a week in our local neighbourhood in a park somewhere, but... Um, Let's be honest, like when you've got a young baby, parenthood is a 24-hour gig and there are not many ways in which you can interact with other people uh, all through the night except online. And we would have these um, hilarious exchanges where one of us would be breastfeeding at 10pm and, oh my God, you know, the baby's not doing this or not doing that and I'm not sure what's going on, can anyone help? And someone else would be, I don't know if you heard the expression, but brexting, it's to text while breastfeeding. Someone else would be brexting at like midnight and she would offer some advice and then someone else would Google at 2am and say, but have you tried this? And um, for me, it was a really, like often it's really lonely when you feel like you're the only person awake in the middle of the night and all you want to do is sleep and you're uh, trying to keep this infant alive and um, feeling rather incompetent at it. And that was a really positive aspect of technology for me, that support and advice could come from other new parents in the same situation at potentially any hour of the day or night. Yeah, actually, that's something that we looked at specifically at our last session, which is about district and communities forming online. Um, but I guess I'm curious about maybe someone who's an app developer here might like to develop an app for... The thing that strikes me when I come into the CBD is where can I change Mabel's nappy... Where can I sit quietly? Like an app that kind of highlights these spots because they're often hidden in the depths of some strange building near the toilets down two flights of stairs. You have to find the accessible entrance, go down the lifts, fight your way through with the pram. I want like technology to help parents in that way to also as a map really for where you can go. I mean, you know, while we wait for the, all the other things to change. 
That would be amazing. And maybe you could, like, get a little, like, um, online thing of where other people using the app are in the city at that point because when you run out of nappies and you've had a poo explosion in Meyer or wherever and you're like, help, anyone else on the app? Yeah, and some critical mass as well, right? Like, I got in trouble once for changing Mabel's nappy on the floor of a restaurant. And, you know, if I'd had a few other mothers around also with pooey nappies, just bring them all in, you know, right then and there. That would have been a good... That would have been good. Anyway, is there one more question? Otherwise, I think we should move on to the party section of the event. No? Well, thank you very much both for for coming and speaking to us. And I hope you'll stay for some pavlova. Um, And, yeah, thank you everyone for coming. I see lots of friends and family members who might not otherwise come to the M Pavilion. So thank you. And also some very loyal mothers who I've met through this series who turn up Um, despite weird weather and time changes and, you know, unknown installations. So thank you very much for coming also to my my fellow mothers. Um, It's been really nice to meet you this way. Okay, thanks you. Thank you, M Pavilion. And thanks, Kate. Um, I'll give my mum a moment, but please all stay nearby so that we can sing a song. Um, And there are going to be some bubbles to blow as well. Um, We'll locate the bubble blowers.